Canada is the quintessential transatlantic country. Our security and prosperity are intimately tied to security and prosperity of both sides of the Atlantic. Our NATO allies are, and will continue to be, central in protecting and defending Canadian interests and values. Canadians sacrificed blood and treasure to defend freedom and democracy in Europe, and Canadians continue to stand on guard in defense of our allies today. This is Across the Pond, an eight-part series by the Macdonald Laurier Institute's Transatlantic Program in cooperation with NATO Public Diplomacy Division, where we explore current and emerging challenges Canada and our NATO allies are facing in a world in flux. I am Dr. Balkan Devlin, a senior fellow at MLI and co-host of Across the Pond. In this episode, I'm joined by two leading figures in the study of Canadian defense and security policy. Professor Joel Sokolsky, who is a professor of political science at Royal Military College, and Professor Joseph Jokel, who is Frank P. Piscor, Professor of Canadian Studies at St. Lawrence University in New York, to talk about their new book, Canada in NATO, 1949-2019, published by McGill and Queen's University Press. In this wide-ranging episode, we talked about the patterns of Canadian involvement in NATO, why NATO was and remains to be central for Canadian international policy, why they describe Canada as an easy rider in NATO, and more. Please enjoy my conversation with Professor Sokolsky and Professor Jokel. Hi, this is Dr. Balkan Devlin. I'm a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and a co-host of Across the Pond podcast. Today, I'm joined by uh, Professor Joel Sokolsky and Professor Joseph Jokel to talk about their recently published book, Canada in NATO, 1949-2019. Joseph, Joel, thanks for joining me. Hello. Thank you. Let me start by asking to both of you to get your motivation for writing this book. This um, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, is perhaps the most comprehensive analysis and, and survey of Canada in NATO uh, that spans 70 years of Canadian involvement there. What's the motivation? What's the, the reason why you would like to end up writing this book? Well, to, to fill the hole in the literature. This is Canada's most important international security commitment. It was a little odd that no one had turned to a book on this subject before. And I think it was interesting, particularly interesting to, to Joel and me on top of it to do it because we've been working in this area for a very, very long time, about half the period covering the book. And I just realized the other day and uh, each of us along the way has encouraged, uh, has encountered lots of smaller pieces by many, many Canadian scholars who have written about this, but never the big picture. So it was also an opportunity to put it all together. Well, I think we also thought that it was uh, timely to have the book, the, the 70th uh, an, uh, anniversary, um, and to put in one volume uh, the history and analysis of Canada's involvement in, in NATO uh, for future scholars and, and students as well. I can tell you from now that you know this is going to, to my syllabus next um, year when I teach the course on the Eastern flank, for sure. So I think that's exactly, both of you highlighted the importance of filling this gap. And, and surprisingly, 
that this was, you know, when I was reading it, it was, yeah, there was nothing this, this comprehensive. So thanks for doing that. I, that's a very important contribution. And as, as, as Joseph highlighted, uh, it also seems to be uh, you know, paralleling sort of your own academic intellectual journey as well, uh, having a look at that in that perspective could also be interesting. Could you provide a bit of the sort of the central arguments of the book? It is a survey of over 70 years, um, and you do have different periodizations within the book and, and Canadian involvement to it. But could you give us the, the sort of the flavor, the core uh, of the argument uh, that you're making? The, the purpose of the book was to describe and analyze what Canada did in NATO during this time period. Uh, We make it clear from the beginning that we're offering no general theories about middle power. Uh, The book does not take Canada to task for omissions or commissions in its approach to NATO. Overall, we see the Canadian involvement in NATO as successful in terms of meeting Canada's national security interest, that Canada was active during this whole period, but at various levels of commitment and that by and large, it contributed to the sustaining of the alliance uh, during the Cold War, which uh, created a stability, global stability in support of the United States, which, which benefited Canada. We do argue that NATO, although it covers North America, was for Europe. That was profoundly important. It was a transatlantic alliance, but was mainly meant to provide for the security of Europe. North American security was handled outside the NATO framework. You mentioned ebbs and flows in terms of different levels of Canadian involvement in NATO. Could you tell us a little bit about those patterns? I mean, how it changed from the founding of the organization to 2019, and and perhaps later on then elaborate on the determinants of that ebb and flow of, of Canadian involvement. Canadians, like the other allies, weren't expecting to have to provide much military contribution when the North Atlantic Treaty was signed. In fact, if you look, there's an early defense white paper we talk about that says Canada is going to be able to spend much less than anticipated because it's ended NATO. But thereupon, once once the Cold War got more difficult after the Korean War, Canada in the 1950s became one of the most important contributors to Europe. This was particularly the case with the Royal Canadian Air Force, which at one point had more modern aircraft, brief point, more modern aircraft than, than even the, the U.S. Air Force, and then and played a major role with uh, 12 squadrons in, in Germany and, and France. But there was also a well-regarded Canadian brigade at a, at a critical spot in Germany, and the Royal Canadian Navy accepted responsibility for about, was going to accept responsibility for about 10% of the, of the escorts in the event of war across the across the North Atlantic. So that was a, a significant contribution at a time when this was all being considered. Germany was just starting to rearm and, and, the, and the Europeans in general were just recovering. The level of Canadian contribution, both absolutely and relatively, uh, declines um, very sharply. The Europeans provided the bulk of the forces. Nuclearization made uh, forces unnecessary. The Canadian government reduced spending heavily to the point where in the 1970s, a great Canadian scholar, John Holmes, said all Canada is providing is a, is a bare presence in Europe. Although it was an interesting one because Canada was still what became divided as well between its commitments, its standing commitments to the central front with deployments in Germany and increasingly important, though problematic, reinforcement capability in, in Norway. After the it, Canadian forces were withdrawn from Europe after the Cold War, 
And then Canada became once again a significant player and a contributor to the alliance in Afghanistan in particular, but also I should have mentioned the Balkans first. Nowadays, it's one of the lead, it is one of the, the lead nations and um, NATO's new efforts in the, in the East, Libya operations, but it has done so at remarkably low force levels compared to what NATO is expecting of its contributors is, is much lower than it had in the 50s. So it is a major contributor. Prime Minister Trudeau, I think, hit the nail on the head when he said as well, it doesn't quite depend as much on what you spend and on your force levels, it's what you do. And Canada has been an active contributor in NATO operations since the Cold War, in particular Afghanistan. To re reinforce the notion that if you look at Canada's level of participation in specific operations, like the Balkans, like Libya, like the enhanced forward presence uh, in the Baltic states, it's significant in terms of the actual NATO operations. The argument that Canadian governments have made is that, you know, we, Canada has to these are transcontinental commitments. They have to be for you're projecting Canadian force across an ocean. And until Afghanistan, most NATO countries were not prepared to do this. One of the arguments, although we make in the paper, is that these contributions were made in support of, of the alliance and, and were very important. Whether they gave Canada any particular influence over allied decisions, American decisions, or others, that's something that's very difficult. And generally, we don't see a particular Canadian agenda for NATO. Canadians, as we mentioned in the book, agonize almost endlessly over how much influence their military contributions by them. And it's just not there. Uh, this doesn't mean the contributions were not uh, important to Canadian interests. But if you're looking for distinctive approaches to international security, you don't get them in a NATO contents, and largely because there was never any Canadian-specific agenda for the alliance. There was, and we can talk about that at the beginning, this the Article 2, uh, but in the larger context, it's hard to identify, to link a specific Canadian contribution to the achievement of a specific Canadian foreign policy goal, other than the general support of the alliance. Canada's most specific goal for NATO was achieved very, very early on in the negotiations over the treaty itself, that there be a, an alliance with a structure in which there would be place for Canada. It wasn't the only country that wanted to make sure that was the case, but it fought ferociously for that at the, in the negotiations in the beginning. One of the alternatives on the table was a unilateral American guarantee of European security which would not have been an alliance. Canadians were insistent on it. And, and any time along the way, when anything threatened that, the, the notion of a multilateral alliance, Canada would get anxious and step up. Could you perhaps elaborate on the primary drivers of that behavior? Is it something to do with ensuring the, which is already quite a high sort of dependence on on the U.S. for security, not to sort of increase that, but but provide some room for maneuver or opening or an opportunity for Canada to be able to act? Was that a part of the reason why Canada was insisting? Look, uh, Pearson, who was the prime driver, Lester Pearson, uh, as Briefly, as Under Secretary of State for External Affairs and then Secretary of State for External Affairs, was very blunt about this, private and in public. He said, in, in World War II, Canada had accepted, because of the necessities of the war, British and American 
domination of the war effort without any role for active Canadian involvement. That would be unacceptable in a new post-World War II alliance, that there would have to be some kind of constitutional structure. Um, now, as Joel says, what Canada did with that constitutional structure, I mean, whether or not it had influence and whether or not it had anything distinctive to say, well, that's a, that's a different issue and it's a trickier issue. It really was the experience in the war that had been pushed aside while it had made a big, big contribution and was not going to accept that again in the, in the North Atlantic Treaty negotiations. And for the rest of the history of the alliance, and for the rest of the history of the alliance, and make sure to to have in a way a meaningful seat at the table, just not you know others making the plans and Canada following, but making sure that you know, Canada is in the room in that sense when decisions are taken. I guess that seems to be one of the one of the drivers. Joel, anything you would like to point out? I think it was important for Canada. That forum was important. And the United States, in some ways, a very tolerant ally. You had this structure. And I think that was, uh, that was important on major issues confronting the, the alliance. Canada tended to seek out a, whatever the consensus was and follow it. Because for Canada, having the allies stay allied uh, fulfilled its objectives within NATO, creating this transatlantic bond. And uh, that was important. Now, the other thing is that, which we, we point out, is once you've bought in, NATO becomes the dri uh, much of the driving force for actual defense expenditure. As we point out, when uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau complains in the late 60s that NATO is driving foreign policy and defense policy, he's correct. <laughs> and he tries to get around it, but by the mid-70s, Canada is going through a, a, a limited rearmament program, the F-18s, the new frigates, long-range patrol aircraft, and all of this is geared toward NATO commitments. And what we stress, though, is, of course, the level of expenditure simply remains with Canada, but the structure of the armed forces, the weapons bought, that is greatly influenced by allied commitments. That's an important part of, of the involvement. And later on in the post-Cold War era, the contributions to the Balkans, to Libya, and, and today or the, with the forward presence, all that is, is a result of the, NATO, of the NATO commitment. If NATO didn't exist and you didn't have that structure to get allies contribute, it's unlikely Canada would have been in these places. I think that's a very important point, and also to point out that perhaps this is also naturally the reflection of the geography. Canada, you know, being in a relatively secure, secure spot in North America, the recognition that having this alliance also brought forward and the primary contribution to the Canadian security, apart from the sort of continental defense that is taken care of bilaterally with the United States, it will be the primary driver of Canadian defense policy, because otherwise, what's the point of replicating or trying to sort of match? American capabilities when it comes to the North American defense, I guess. That's an interesting point to highlight. Another way you can you can see that playing out is when Prime Minister Trudeau Jr. comes to first on the campaign trail, he says he's he sends the message that Canada's going to be back, there's going to be more peacekeeping, he's going to withdraw CF-18s from Iraq. I mean, there's also, he makes some noises about supporting NATO and others, but the message is Canada's going to go back into blue helmets and berets. No, he comes to power, and there is a kind of token peacekeeping effort. But next thing you know, Canada is leading the NATO training mission in Iraq and becoming the lead NATO nation in Latvia. We're building a new military facility in, in Latvia because that really is what is important. 
It's the instrument for, for Canada's involvement in international security. That's a fundamental point to, to highlight, I think, for the audience as well, that NATO, as you pointed out, is the primary instrument in which Canada is contributing to international peace and security and with the allies. I want to get back to one of the issues that you raised in the book and also mentioned, mentioned here. I think it lines up nicely that, as Joel pointed out, as long as the allies remained aligned, Canada so, sort of seems to be achieving its primary goal. And the Article 2, the so-called Canadian article, the political dimension, has been talked about, is, and I think going forward with you know 30 uh, members, uh, 30 allies today in NATO, we're going to be much more important under Trump, but continuing also with, with the Biden administration. We tend to see a bit of pulling apart of allies going different directions. This is true for different you know, eastern, eastern flank versus the southern flank uh, members and, and the new members coming in and all that. Is it time for Canada to be able to pay a bit more attention to make sure that the allies remain aligned? And, and would that create an opportunity to maybe a renewed effort to emphasize the transatlantic community component, the Article 2 component of the alliance? We look at this, the, the Article 2 and, and, and a certain reluctance on the part of the United States at the beginning of it, but there are so many other institutions that deal with things that Article 2 was, particularly on the economic side. It's hard to see how you could revive it. There is a sense, you know, you want to maintain that broad transatlantic solidarity, common culture, democracy, and so forth. With the European Union, with the emphasis on the Indo-Pacific area, uh, particularly with regard to trade, Canada looking for bilateral trade arrangements, it's hard to see how you could, that that's the best mechanism to revive it. I'm not sure there's a receptivity. Uh, on the part of other other allies. After all, uh, Canada negotiated, uh, you know, we had NAFTA in the early 90s, and now the Canada, the U.S.-Canada-Mexico uh, agreement. Canada itself has indicated that it's going to take care of its economic issues outside the NATO framework. Yeah, and just to briefly reiterate a point, I think one of the things the book does is going back to the original period and uh, is to emphasize that while Article 2 is the most well-known Canadian effort from the early period because not only was it championed by Canadians, but along the way for a couple of times, Canada tried to breathe some life into it. Article 2 says that the alliance will members will cooperate beyond just military security. But that was only a part of the Canadian package. Just as important as Article 2 was the absolute insistence that there be a table that there, be a, that there be an alliance with a structure. And while Canada never was able to breathe life into Article 2, and I, and I agree with Joel, it's probably hard to do it now, particularly after the, the creation of the European Union, other parts still remain important. Um, NATO itself is threatened. We don't know if it's going to be able to exist in the coming years. Maintaining, or at least keeping the table, <laughs> might end up taking an important, increased importance, perhaps, for Canada going forward, precisely for the reasons you're highlighting. I want to get to one point that you encapsulate in, in the book, and you mentioned it, Joseph, at the beginning, when, when you're talking about the contributions to NS forward presence. And that is the distinction you're making that Canada is not a free rider, but an easy rider. Would you like to elaborate a little bit on that? I like that phrasing and, and framing, but for the audience, a bit what you mean by that. Well, I'll start with the term, actually, that's this is Joel's term. He, he brought it to the book, so I'll, I'll start off and then turn it over to, over to him. A couple of ways. First, in terms of defense expenditures, with 
with the exception of the early period, when at one point Canada was spending 10% of the federal budget on national defense, uh, was making huge contributions, um, so not only in NATO, but also to North American defense, with the exception of that period in the 1950s. It has not cost Canada very much to be part of the alliance. With due respect, of course, always to the 124 or 126 Canadians who killed in, were killed in Afghanistan in service to the alliance. And since the Cold War, it has not been a heavy burden. Canada spending well under the, the NATO alliance. And then even in the period in which it was barely there, it was still at the table. But again, Joel, this is your term, so why don't you talk about it, Canada as the as the easy ride? So that's exactly it. it. It's a manageable contribution from a fiscal point of view. It has been for quite a while. This is the term easy rider. Now, as I mentioned earlier, on specific operations, and here as as Joseph mentioned, you know, Afghanistan, it's a disproportionate contribution, even though in absolute terms it, it's dwarfed by the Americans and others, but the but, but Canada did make great sacrifices and, and, and in the current ones, but it's something you can manage. One of the things we discuss is, you know, does the Canadian, the level of Canadian contribution have an impact on, on influence and that? And here it's difficult to say because that very table that Canada wanted gives all allies a certain nominal level of equality regardless of, of contribution. So even during the early 70s, when Canadians, you know, when the contribution was, as John Holmes said, a bare presence, a Canadian admiral was made head of the NATO military committee. And no one's ever said to Canada, you're not spending enough, go home. The politicians know this, and it's the way the alliance operates. The other thing is Canada's, of course, military spending includes North America, but, but North America doesn't generate great demands on the defense budget. Certainly it's it didn't, you know, toward the end of the Cold War. So Canada never had the option and never said to Europe, well, look, uh, the treaty covers North America, the protection of the American homeland, the credibility of the U.S. Uh, deterrent uh, depends on warning and assessment of attack. Our contribution to European security will be to protect North America. And that never happened. It was always Europe was going on and, and Canada managed. It was an alliance that suited Canadian approach to, to that. And I'd also mention something that Canadians have an internationalist itch. They love to be involved and not just involved, but in the big leagues. And NATO was the biggest league. And so this satisfied Canada's national self-perception as being more than just a small power uh, located in the northern part of North America, as being a world player. And I think without NATO, you couldn't have made that claim. The most dramatic moment is that when that occurs is when the first Prime Minister Trudeau com comes into power. He's going to rethink all the defense commitments. And he literally does this Pierre Trudeauvian Cartesian thing. We're going to start off and makes the cabinet think everything through, leads a sort of seminar with his cabinet. And uh, they had all been saying, oh, maybe we can withdraw from the alliance. Maybe we can do it differently. But when the cabinet actually gets down and sits and thinks through first principles, I said, we can't do anything without NATO. And next thing you know, the force levels are reduced. But the, the Trudeau government is saying, oh, we're remaining in NATO and we're going to keep forces, forces in there. It is the big leagues from which Canada profits enormously.
That also shows the remarkable continuity Canadian governments across different parties. Whatever you know, preconceptions they come to power, the realities on the ground, like like you highlighted, almost you know, immutable characteristics of necessities of Canadian defence and, and contributions, and, and everybody in a way you know, fall into a narrow line then due to these realities. Although they still don't want to spend a lot on it, you always get the balance of those two interests and trying to balance those two interests. And governments have as long as you can keep your, your seat at the table without spending a lot. I think it's a, it's a nice place to pivot to the last question here uh, with this. Going forward, I know sort of the book ends in 2019. Perhaps I can ask you to sort of forecast a little uh, or speculate a little what it means uh, going forward to do this, this ebb and flow for Canadian involvement in NATO. Are we going to see the same old, same old? Will there be increasing pressure or demand for Canada to do more and spend more? You know, not be an easy rider anymore, but what do you see going forward for Canadian involvement in NATO? Well, this is where we leave off. Great deal of hesitation. And a critical question for Canada in the coming years is going to be, is there going to be a NATO? And it's not going to be in the influential position it was in 1948, 1949. The rifts are opening between the Europeans and the Americans on security. Lots of people thought that they might immediately be healed by the transition from the Trump to Biden presidencies. They're not. Canada is going to have to be diplomatically active to to attempt to hold the alliance together, but it will not be a major player in all this. This is a question of are the Americans and the Germans and the French and the the British, are they going to be able to reach a new, are they going to maintain this alliance? Well, I think that yes, that the future of the alliance is not in Canada's hands. Uh, As we describe, uh, Justin Trudeau realized what's going on and he puts a lot of effort into it, although not necessarily a lot of money, but this these trends are something over which Canada has a little control. You could speculate because now you have the Biden administration, which I agree with Joseph, is not the multilateral nirvana for, for NATO. It reflects American interest as it should. But if you take, for example, this, well, what are you going to do about the Pacific? And Canada can say, well, gee, we're a Pacific power too. Why are we sitting in Latvia? Uh, maybe we should beep off our political presence. Is there some sort of shortage of troops in Europe that can't garrison Latvia? And, uh, you know, why should we have ships uh, patrolling the Mediterranean when everyone is telling us Indo-Pacific is where the action is? And this is the difference. And it comes back to the point Joseph was making at the beginning of the book. There is no structure in the Pacific similar to NATO. There's no common table. That's going to make a difference. A Canadian defense posture, which emphasizes North America, and there may be more needed in North America. And the Pacific is not the same as what Canada had obtained in the, uh, in the, in the North Atlantic. So it's going to profoundly affect defense policy and its place in the world. In the Pacific, can send one or two ships through the states of the Taiwan Straits and to the South China Sea and show up for RIMPAC exercises. It's not a region in which any level of Canadian contribution would be significant. And again, without an institutional structure to manage it, it would be a different arrangement than Canada had obtained in NATO in 1949. And I think, as the discussion suggests, NATO and, and, and presence in NATO and contributions to NATO uh, provides the sort of the biggest bang for, for the Canadian buck when it comes to international security. And coupled with that, the you know, unwillingness uh, for the politicians and not much of a desire among the public to spend more on defense would also suggest that you know, doubling down or, or sort of augmenting 
capabilities in Europe, you know, Canadian capabilities and contributions in Europe seems to be the way forward. But, you know, then I would say that because I'm a transatlanticist, but to me, it looks like the sort of <laughs> given limited resources and potential in you know, various places that can be used, that seems to be uh, bringing the best return on investment when it comes to Canadian security. Well, there's room to grow. And uh, look, um, Canada is lead nation in Latvia for, for NATO. And that involves a commitment on the ground of about 500 troops. That's not a lot when you look back in the history of Canadian security engagements. I think there is a lot of room for growth, including uh, not only sort of troop numbers, but also capabilities and to support those missions. Naval component, I think, you know, increasingly important. And Canada does uh, play a role. I mean, previous uh, commander, the current commander for the Standing Naval Group, uh, Maritime Group 1, is, is, is a Canadian officer. I think that those are all essential points that actually needs to be augmented. Being the easy rider and not much push coming from the alliance, as well as not much demand coming from the public, seems to let the, the politicians go, you know, scat-free <laughs> without necessarily making these um, investments and contributions because they don't have to. Any last points that you both would like to uh, add, Joel uh, and, and Joseph? A single event, something similar to the Russian uh, seizure of Crimea, could change calculations very quickly, which is why we didn't speculate at the end of the year. Something could change. A defection or a problem with the democratic or non-democratic governments in Poland or Hungary could change things, could change things very, very quickly. Canada could say, and I mentioned before, well, we have the Pacific, but Canada could say, look, while you pivot to the Indo-Pacific, we have limited resources. We're gonna we're gonna sort of pivot back to Europe, because there we have. I don't know if anybody wants to make necessarily make that argument, because again, you have this draw of where the action is, and if the action is Indo-Pacific, Canadian politicians who are quite wily about using, you know, even Henry Kissinger recognizes using limited resources to leverage political participation. May, may say, um, well, you know, we're not going to, we are building new ships, so we're going to be ready to contribute in the Atlantic when the time comes. And then there's always the Arctic. If that's becoming important, then maybe we should, maybe we should contribute there. But that would take a sort of kind of initiative, uh, an older Trudeau-esque kind of initiative that I'm not sure politicians want to do because there's no advantage, no any advantage to it. If you can send a few ships into the far Pacific once every two years, and you know, Canada's last transit through the Taiwan Straits caught Beijing's attention, that's uh, easy riding. Well, I mean, it, it, it's time to think, and I'm not sure I have any any great ideas myself for, for Canada's diplomatic initiatives too. It might be time to, for just off the top of my head, to, to appoint a high-profile ambassador to NATO within Canada and perhaps somewhere else in the world for prominent Canadian leaders to make a number of addresses, but bring Canada's own thinking forward about what the future of the alliance should be in this uh, in these new, new in these changing circumstances. And I think it's also you know very important to put this in a context of a larger assessment of foreign policy, what the priorities are, what it should be, and and where those resources need to go. Uh, you know, I know that my colleagues working on Indo Pacific are very sort of frustrated with the even the sort of the lack of or continued delay 
of an Indo-Pacific strategy. I mean, the Germans have it, even the Dutch have it, and others have it. And Canada still doesn't have one. All these problems need to be placed in such a context of rethinking what Canada needs to be doing and where and how and what the national interests are and where should the, the resources need to be directed to. Uh, well, you know, will there be, in the cabinet shuffle, will there be uh, an energetic and enthusiastic and, and active foreign minister? I think we, we, we shall all see. Well, thank you very much, Joel and Joseph, uh, joining me today. And uh, for the audience, the book is Canada in NATO, 1949-2019. It's out. From my own experience, I know it's, it's going pretty well, I guess, because my, my own copy will be arriving uh, within a month or so. So if you want to get it uh, before Christmas, uh, go ahead and order. Once again, thank you for, uh, for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. 